friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Thank you for joining us this week. We love our listeners, and thank you for the way that you keep coming back. We hope that we're delivering wonderful conversations as we are in the beginning of summer, or actually right deep in it. It's steamy around here in Miami, where I live. So many kids are home, including mine. A real concern for us parents is how much time they're spending on social media in and out of school. And my TCA colleague and good friend Ashley McGuire and I will discuss why there isn't a ban on social media for kids. Why is it open season on our children for the tech companies, especially now that we know the real dangers? But first, speaking of dangers to our kids, it is Pride Month and you don't have to look too far to see that this infiltrates every little aspect of life from social media to your visit to the grocery store. It is affecting our children. It's in their in their libraries, in our schools, the LGBT lobbying efforts are at all new heights and potentiated by corporations and academia. We will talk to Mary Hassan of the Ethics and Public Policy Center to look at these efforts and what it all means, what's behind them, and ways Catholic families can combat this problem. Welcome back to the show, Mary. Thanks so much, Gracie. It's wonderful to talk with you. This is June. It's We're almost done with June, and it's already been a very long month. June, as everyone knows, is Pride Month. Um, the United States, in its wisdom, has decided to devote an entire month to celebrating alternative sexual lifestyles, which is a very long time. A month is a very long time. I'm finding it longer and longer every year. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, let's let's even start by saying, you know, lots of really fabulous, beautiful things uh, like mothers and fathers get <laughs> one day out of the year. Uh, Christ gets Christmas and Easter mm-hmm. and all sexually alternative lifestyles to get a whole month. Now, there's a whole uh, reason for this that's very deep and very complicated. I wanted to talk about that with you, Mary. Why are we celebrating as a culture? Uh, and this is a very big why, but maybe you could give mm-hmm. us a couple of th- uh, deep thoughts on why this has become this dominant narrative in our culture. Yeah, good question. I think this has sort of several layers to it. So on, on the one hand, some of the impetus for some of the original pride celebrations came out of a sense of people who experienced same-sex attraction or identified as part of the LGBT community, who had felt shamed and stigmatized and oppressed, who felt like they could finally, quote, come out in a public way and celebrate these identities that they were living on the public stage. So it was it was an effort to be visible. It was an effort to celebrate something that they had felt was, was really a matter of shame and stigma within the culture. And that was some of the original reasoning. But it has really shifted and changed over certainly the past decade, where we've seen a corporate influence coming in. And I think that's one thing, one reason why I, we're all feeling that sense of being beleaguered 
mm-hmm. <laughs> through this month. We're bombarded everywhere. It's not about a parade or television feature or something like that. This is an entire month where in every aspect of our lives, this lifestyle, the values it represents, the belief system behind it, the rituals are all being force-fed to everyone. It's not a it's not a private celebration. It's not even just, you know, a single effort to say, hey, look at us, this is what we think, which is what all sorts of special interests do, special interest groups do in our culture. But this is something more. This is a pervasive effort to just flood the zone of our lives. Yeah, you make a very good point that it's a corporate blitz that we're experiencing. Uh, also governmental, right? There's also the, mm-hmm. the whole um, administrative state that's heavily invested in it, the military. <laughs> yes, yeah. Very interesting to me that the military um, should decide to go with that as a big, uh, you know, mm-hmm. sort of vanguard action on their part. But so it's military, it's, uh, it's educational, the educational mm-hmm. system, it's corporate, it's uh, admin- administrative state. Now the executive, the executive branch of the government is is heavily into it. So we are healthcare, feeling, religion, oh yes, of course, healthcare. You know, yeah, it's every institution in our in our culture really has capitulated in some way to this. And, and I really think it helps to step back and realize this is a belief system. This is no longer, if it ever was, a celebration of someone's political philosophy or uh, heritage or something like that. This is a belief system. What is the belief system of the rainbow flag? What It seems to me it's sort of a religious, quasi-religious, heavily ideological set of set of things we're supposed to sign on to uh, as, as beliefs. What are these set of beliefs? I think the core... And the core value or the core belief is really that the individual gets to define for themselves who they are, what they do, how they want to live. And there is no morality. There is no truth. There's just this intense celebration of my personal desires and my autonomy, you know, a false view of freedom, the license to do whatever I want in terms of self-definition and self-gratification. So it's it's anti-God in that sense. And it, and by saying that, Gracie, I, you know, I'm not saying that anyone who shows up at a pride parade or whatever is thinking to themselves, I, I'm rebelling against God. I'm not saying it's a deliberate conscious thing, but it's definitely woven into the the ideology here that's driving this. So you think at bottom is the the complete unfettering of the individual from what? From expectations of, of certain kinds of behavior that are in, that are uh, built into our families, our cultures, our past, our religion, is that is that fair to say? But even deeper, I think at root it's a rebellion against God, but it's permeated with queer theory. Which the idea of queer theory is to reject any sense of normativity. In other words, there are no norms. There are no moral norms. There are no social norms. There are no relational norms. I get to write my own script. I get to transgress all of these expectations that are put on me by society or religion or whatever, natural law, all of that is thrown out the window. So there is no human nature. There is no good or evil. There's no truth. There's there's nothing good about the family. Uh, and, and there is no God. So all of that comes into queer theory. And, and that's why this is really a, a consuming thing. And I came across a statement that St. Pope John Paul II had made back in the year 2000 when one of the first pride celebrations was happening in Rome. And he made a statement about it. And he said he expressed deep sadness 
over this offense to Christian values. So that was over 20 years ago. And he's looking at this and he's saying, this is something deeper. And he went on to say, the church cannot be silent about the truth because she would fail in her fidelity to God, the creator, and would not help to distinguish good from evil. So these are are huge concepts. In other words, he's looking out at at what's happening in front of him in Rome and this early pride parade and and celebration, which was not nearly as depraved as as what we see marching down the streets of D.C. or San Francisco or or even Dubuque, you know, any any place where it's, it's become increasingly depraved. But he's looking at this and he's saying, you know, this is about good and evil. This is about fidelity to God. This is about the church church and Christian values embedded in society and in the culture. And what we're seeing in front of us, draped in the rainbow, is a rejection of all of that. And he he said that 20 years ago, Mm -hmm. but I, I think it's to the point where all of us can recognize that this is something deeper. This is not about a flash in the pan, make someone feel good, or okay, everyone has their own kind of celebration. It's not really about morals or sexuality. It it very much is. Mary, I've been watch. I've been. I think about this topic a lot, and I feel that what's been happening over the last few decades, and see if this rings true to you, is that at first, what people were rejecting when they were rejecting the truth is they were rejecting moral truths. They were saying, mm-hmm. well, you know. We live in a complex world where different people have different ideas about what's right and wrong. Mm-hmm. And your my moral ideas are not the same as yours. My truths are not the same as yours. Mm-hmm. But they were talking about moral truths, right? Like, so a man yeah. ought to marry a woman before he has children with her. A man mm-hmm. ought to marry only a woman <laughs> instead of three mm-hmm. instead of three women or a man. Mm-hmm. And the family is a certain kind of family and we have to fulfill the expectations that are laid upon us uh, and the duties that are laid upon us by things like marriage and, re- and other important mm-hmm. relationships. Um, so they reject, we re- you know, as a culture, we rejected moral truths, but now we seem to have gone a much bigger step forward and now we are uh, rejecting truths which are just simple facts, right? Like biologic right. facts. So how did we get from rejecting moral truths that we wanted to argue in in the name of diversity um, Mm -hmm. might not apply to everybody to rejecting facts, physical facts um, Mm -hmm. that are palpable to everyone. How do we get there and how does how is this changing people's perception of the rainbow people? Yeah, good point. So um, how did we get here? I, I think a lot of it comes back to the loss of faith, the decline of Christianity, because we know both from scripture and the teaching of the church that uh, habitual sin, but turning away from God causes us to lose clarity in terms of what's right and what's wrong. So what started out, let's say, in the sexual revolution is rejecting moral truths, which again, all truth comes from God, right? It's not like some truths are better than than others in, at this level. It's, I mean, this is all part of the understanding we gain of who we are from God. And, you know, so we can only know ourselves in light of God, in light of understanding the truth. And the moral law comes from that. It's, it's his prescription for a happy life, you know, live this way. And this is how you flourish and find me and, and come and, and be with me forever in heaven. But when you toss out those moral truths, it changes the way you look at the world. And it changes not only that, your framework within which you judge good and evil. And all of that has an erosive effect, a corrosive effect, in fact, where little by little, you lose that clarity and you come to the point where you're rejecting not just an aspect of morality that doesn't fit with 
your life choices, you're rejecting the entire framework, the idea that there is Mm. truth and that there is a human nature, that my body has a design that I'm not free to alter, that there's a God who gave us all of this and who defines truth. And so all of that eventually gets thrown out because it becomes more and more difficult to see what the truth is. You know, and I often think about something that you used to hear a lot, say 20 or 30 years ago, people would say, oh, you can be good without God, right? There was a book of, of that title and no one wants to be judgmental. And of course, we all know good people who are not Christians or not believers yet. But when you're talking on the level of a society in huge numbers, rejects God, rejects the moral law, and then rejects even the natural law, the truths that are built into just understanding what a human being is, then it, it's pretty tough as a culture to be good. And I think that's what we're seeing right now with the, the fraying and the fracturing. That's and a that's, great, we, that's a great explanation, Mary. And I, I thank you for that because I have been having problems understanding that. But I see what you're saying. You're, if you accustom yourself to rejecting moral truths, which the, tr- the, the fact is moral truths are built into our natures just as our mm-hmm. physical natures are built into us, right? Like, right. I know that morally I know, even if no one has ever told me that it would be wrong for me to shove a little old lady off her chair and sit in it myself, <laughs> right? Like that's something that's right. built into me as a human being. It's in my DNA in a sense. Right. So once we get used to rejecting moral truths, we become more comfortable rejecting facts. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what does that do to a culture who's you know, who's maybe hasn't bought into the whole agenda, but we're watching that next evolution where we go from rejecting Mm -hmm. moral truths to rejecting physical facts. Yeah. So realize what what happens when you reject the moral truths and then the physical, you're putting yourself in sort of the seat of God. You're saying, Mm -hmm. I'm in charge. You know, I get to decide all these things that really are not up for grabs. And so there's a fundamental delusion or blindness that begins to seep into the culture where we really think we can disregard the laws of, of gravity in one sense as applied to the person, the natural laws about who we are. A man can't become a woman. And yet here we are not only trying to do that, but celebrating it and promoting it to children. So in the same way, one of the things that I've seen, one of the evolutions just in terms of these pride celebrations has been just this openness in terms of of real depravity, but also a breaking of boundaries between adults and children. Mm-hmm. So it's it, it's become fashionable in the past, certainly the past decade. You know, bring your kids to Pride, and children in grade schools and in children's media are being flooded again with all of these Pride symbols and everything. But what's happening is it's not all about rainbows. It's introducing a level of sexuality and depravity and and. Uh, transgression of basic moral truths, reality about who we are into children's lives. So it, it's crossing that boundary of that our society used to respect that, you know, whatever adults do, right, you do behind your closed doors and, and all of that. That was sort of a, a prevailing line of thought. And now that's not true. It's like, come out and do it every, wherever you want and introduce it to other people's children. And that all of that is supposed to be inoffensive and, and accepted by parents and, and everyone else. I have a theory about that. The the rainbow movement, the, the pride movement has uh, this idea that all sexual boundaries are... Mm-hmm 
wrong, right? And they and they they cause people harm by not allowing them to express their full identity. Mm-hmm. Um, so, mm-hmm. what are the sexual barriers which remain uh, in our culture? There are very few. There's the sexual mm-hmm. barrier of pedophilia. We're not supposed to use children sexually, and there's maybe incest. What that's I would say that's about to fall if it hasn't fallen already mm-hmm. in some states. I think it has. I mean, what's another? Maybe necrophilia. I mean, there's there's a cup. There's two or three things that we still say should not be done. And mm-hmm. I would I would think I think it's a it's a huge challenge for these people to demolish the last few sexual barriers. Do you think that's true? Yeah, but I, I think what happens is again it, it sort of is a wearing down of the sensibilities of all of the rest of us because you can become accustomed to evil. You can become accustomed to things that used to shock the conscience and and you become jaded. I, I don't know if you remember the movie The Pianist. Yeah, it was about yeah. yeah. So I, one of the scenes that I remember from stunning. there that's that always stunning, but very me. strong movie. <laughs> yeah, very very strong. But when he first was in in the ghetto and people were being killed and dropping in front of him dying, you know, he was just torn apart, bending down, trying to help people. By the end, he's walking past them, stumbling over them. It just, in other words, he got worn down. He became calloused to the suffering and and what was going, the evil that was going on around him. And so I think in a sense, we become desensitized in that very same way. So in terms of boundaries and what's, you know, what the sexual frontier is, I, I think we have successfully change the conversation in our culture in a bad way towards the only boundary being consent so except children can't consent so well how how do they walk around that consent boundary so so one of the things that i've seen in just tracking this is an increased discussion about the idea that that children are sexual from birth that children can appreciate and need to be um, sex positive need to embrace their sexuality from the beginning and that children are more mature than we give them credit for. So we see that with the transgender movement, right? We, where people say, oh, a child of five or six, they can tell you who they are, even if it defies reason and common sense and the reality of their body. We're supposed to go along with that. So unfortunately, when your only boundary in a culture is consent, the only good is autonomy. I get to choose what I do. That becomes a very thin boundary that can be moved at will by people who are unscrupulous or who well, because all you all you have to do is convince yourself that children can consent, right? That's it. Exactly. And you there just, are people who who are public about that. There are professors who are public about that. In other words, that's not a shameful perspective. <laughs> that's no, that's coming back out. I've I've said this before. I don't know if I've said this on the air, but um, and it shocks people when I say it. But I believe that the the promoting transgenderism or supporting transgenderism in children is pedophilia. It is technically mm-hmm. pedophilia because what you're doing is you're telling children that they have sexual identities mm-hmm. that they need to express. So you're you're talking about expressing sex, ha- helping children express sexuality. Now this is a this is a taboo in our culture mm-hmm. as far back as we can remember, right? Because it right. and the Judeo Christian the Judeo Christian culture is is I think it might be uh, unique in this in the protection of children from sexuality, mm-hmm. like put, putting um, a beautiful box around children and saying we don't do sexuality with children like we don't mm-hmm. we we're mm-hmm. we're gonna wait till puberty when the child becomes a sexual person and mm-hmm. then and then they can marry but before that there's this purity box around children that i think is very beautiful and very unique to judeo-christian culture because i i don't i think in every other culture children uh, you know in the pagan cultures and other cultures mm-hmm. children were just 
objects to be used. And if some yeah. of that use was sexual, well, then so be it. Um, nobody was going to ask them for consent. <laughs> nobody was right, interested. Right. How, what a sad thing, Mary, that we're taking that box away from children. And transgenderism is part of that taking away of the box. Yeah. And you see that even in just mainstream conversations where people mock the idea that children uh, should have a world that is more innocent, that they shouldn't be exposed to evil or even healthy sexuality prematurely, that that's, that's not something that we, we, we bring into children's world before they're old enough to understand it and to have the maturity too to begin to understand their own emotions and, and their own drives and to exercise self-control because in, until then we need to protect them. But that's, but that's also, become an know, idea that's mine. You know, from a scientific perspective, before puberty, a child has no sexual function. Right, right. I mean, but, and that's so science and morality square right there very well. Mm-hmm. Right, but you know, just like the idea that, that we are male or female and you can't change sex, how that's become cloudy. There's a fog machine that just sort of blurs that in people's understanding. I think the same thing is happening here, where the idea that you will have seven or eight-year-olds quote, coming out as gay or lesbian when, as you say, they haven't even gone through puberty. They don't they don't have that that same awareness of sexual desire, et cetera. But to the culture, to those who are reinforcing these ideas, that's not accepted. That what's what is promoted is the idea that no, children know who they are and they're sexual from birth and they need to be encouraged to masturbate, to do this, to do that. You know, I'll give you an example. My I was talking to someone whose daughter was listening to a Disney princess program and it was a it may have been a video or an audio I, I don't remember which but on came an ad for abortion and contraception on this Disney Channel, Disney Princess. Okay, so we're not talking about 13-year-olds. We're talking about seven and eight-year-old girls. And yet they're advertising and talking about contraception and abortion at those ages. So again, we see this, this disrespect for boundaries of purity, of innocence, of the delineation between adults and children, and the idea that some things are for adults and some things are to be kept from children for their own protection. Mary, you and I have both seen and all our listeners have seen what happens um, to people when they become parents. They suddenly stop thinking of themselves. They think of mm-hmm. the other, in this case being their progeny, and mm-hmm. their entire worldview changes and they become very protective people. Mm-hmm. Because before, when before you have children, you're, you're very adventurous and you sort of see the mm-hmm. world through the eyes of the adventurous young. But then when you have a child, you see that there are you know tremendous evil forces in the world that can rip your child out of your arms or destroy your child and you become this protective, wonderful mm-hmm. mother or father. I think that a, a, a big problem we're having in our culture that fewer and fewer people are marrying and having children and that or they're delaying having children until they're very much old, they're much older, mm-hmm. which gives mm-hmm. you a lot more people living in this space where that protective impulse is missing. Mm-hmm. I, I think you're spot on there because one of the things I've noticed with the publication of uh, teachers going on TikTok videos and things like that and, and really pushing their queerness or their views on sexuality is that almost universally, they're not mothers mm-hmm. or they're not fathers. They are single people who have have uh, little conception of of what it takes to raise a child or that natural sense of wanting to protect them. And if you've grown up without siblings too, and that's something we're seeing in, in this culture, far fewer people have siblings, have nephews, have nieces, has, have cousins, and fewer and fewer are becoming parents. So 
they're losing that intuitive sense. It, it becomes buried under the weight of the culture, that intuitive sense that, gosh, we, we need to protect children. So I, I think you're exactly right on that. For a long time, Mary, the pride parades um, and, the, and, the whole, and the whole LGBTQ movement in general wanted to normalize. I think it, they, were, they meant to normalize these aberrant sexual lives and make them seem like, you know, John and Mary next door. Right. Mm-hmm. We're, we're right. Just, you know, we're made by, we might be different sexes, but we mm-hmm. are genders, but we're living that same life mm-hmm. that you want to live. Why do you want to deny us mm-hmm. this life? Mm-hmm. But I think there's been a big step in, in a completely different direction where, like you said earlier, people are exhibiting their fetishes and, and being very transgressive and in, in, in mm-hmm. the celebration of these identities. Do you think that this is causing a welcome revulsion in the normal in the normal population who's who's saying, well, maybe, you know, you didn't really actually mean to just live an, a nice suburban life that you maybe you really wanted to leave these live these fetishes and, and inculcate our children. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting because I know a number of people who are part of the LGB community and some of them will articulate what you just said. They want to just have this relationship and, and have, you know, the white picket fence, etc. But there is a, a significant portion of, of that community that has a completely different goal. And in fact, uh, just historically, that has been a tension. So the idea of promoting same-sex marriage, for example, by making it something that was normal, was very successful. You know, it's, we're just like you. We want the same things. But it, it also was resisted at that time during those years of, of campaigns for same-sex marriage. It was resisted by many of, of the hardcore, you know, people who were part of that movement because particularly for gay men, it's much more of a sexualized lifestyle. And now we're seeing that in particular with the transgender lifestyle. So I there's a divide. And in one sense, there's a, I think, a crack that's emerging, which is good, which is kind of healthy because I, I've seen, again, people who may identify as part of those communities, but who are looking at what's happening in the streets and looking at, at the overload of all this stuff coming from every quarter and saying, this is too much, you know, and, and don't bring kink onto the street. Don't bring all this stuff out right in front of me. And, and so I think it's creating even a, a resurfacing some of that division that was in the LGBT community, you know, back even before same-sex marriage became a reality here. So so it's just kind of interesting to see the pushback, even from people who, you know, for years would have been out there in the streets and, and being part of those pride celebrations and who feel now there's a lot of corporate posturing and you've got the radicals and the influence of, of queer culture. Again, just complete transgression, rejecting any normalcy in anything is over the top, even for people who, who may have embraced, you know, a, a same-sex lifestyle, and yet they're looking at this and saying, this is even further. But really, it's a piece. It's of all of the same piece. Once you reject God and you reject the truth that God has written into our bodies and the design he has for our relationships, it's just a question of how far out in the ocean you're floating, you know, how far afield you're getting. It's, it's the rejection that is the problem. So you have to come back to the truth in order to turn things around. Well, those are perfect words to end on, Mary. Thank you for joining us again. Thank you for your words of wisdom and, and the, the great knowledge you bring to these hard topics. And to our listeners, you can learn more about Mary Hassan at eppcdc.org. That's the Ethics and Public Policy Center website.
Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm on with my husband, Dr. Stephen Christie, author of Speaking for the Unborn, 30-Second Pro-Life Rebuttals to Pro-Choice Arguments. We just finished a wonderful conversation with Kristen Hawkins. She's the president of Students for Life, someone that Stephen and I are, are both fans of. She's a person who has um, taken that uh, that idea that is very real that the world belongs to the young the future belongs to them and we better be uh, taking care of, of who they are becoming she's taking that very seriously and evangelizes to the youth Stephen you also spend a lot of time talking to young people promoting your book but more than that promoting um, the idea in your book that that the the arguments uh, for abortion are are a finite set <laughs> and that you know it's possible for each of us to learn these arguments and then learn the proper responses that will actually change people's minds do you have um do you have success when you speak to groups about um really you know making people feel really confident that they're able to to learn these these arguments and the responses no, absolutely we've i've gotten a lot of feedback and we've actually done workshops with some books um What's really exciting is that not so much that the book is amazing, and I have to promote it and hope that you'll all go out and buy the book at Amazon, but what's exciting is that the pro-life cause is a winning one, and anybody could have collected really these, these arguments and edited them and put them in a user-friendly format, but they're there, and they're useful, and they're ready to go. And when your arguments are based on facts, science, and truth, you will persuade people. I always talk about the pro-choice position relying on cliches and rhetorical deception and personal or ad hominem attacks. And you go nowhere with those. So it's exciting to be on this side where facts, truth, and science really lead the way. I, my experience so far has, has been over the last few years, it's very rare that I don't convince somebody at least to take a big step in the right direction. Maybe twice have I gotten nowhere with people. I, and this is consistent with the polling. The data shows around between 71 and 75% of people on both sides of this issue agree, for example, for uh, restriction of abortions, none after 12 weeks. That's including pro-choice people. So it's very rare that I can't people get people that to, to, to agree to that or much less. And, and I believe in incrementalism. I'd love to have no abortions immediately. But in this movement, I don't want to be, I don't want to force people at gunpoint to, to, from my viewpoint. I want, to, I want to win these hearts and minds of these people and bring them to my side. When we were talking to Kristen, I mentioned a recent Gallup poll, and this was, these are some numbers that, uh, that came up in this poll. 48% of people uh, would like abortion to remain legal, but with some limits. So that would, that would tally with what you've just told us, right? Uh, people that say, well, abortion should be allowed, but not abortion for 40 weeks and for any reason and for sex selection, et cetera, et cetera. Only 32% of people polled thought that abortion should be completely legal, and only 19% thought that it should be completely illegal. Why do you, how do you uh, work with those two numbers? Because I'm in the 19% that, is, that think it should be completely illegal. And I do realize that I'm in a, I am in a minority. And I feel that when, when I speak to people, even who say that they are, I know a lot of people who say they are pro-life. But then, you know, if you press them, they might say, well, yes, I'm pro-life, I'm pro-life. But, you know, in this case or in that extreme case. What do you think about those sort of extreme case situations? Sure, sure. I, I, I don't want to sound too condescending, but polling only reveals what's popular, not what's right or just or moral. 
and polling obviously varies depending on who's doing the polling and how that question is being asked. But remember, when you're looking at a population that says that 30 percent, for example, uh, believe in, in unrestricted abortion, those same people often can't identify who the vice president of the United States is. So it's not necessarily an educated uh, or I wouldn't say educated an informed group on this particular topic. Uh, my experience is if you reveal the truth in a kind and compassionate way to them, the people even that are fiercely pro-choice find out that they're not so fiercely pro-choice. And one of the things that, that we didn't talk about in the last segments is a lot of times, and this book is about speaking for the unborn, speaking on their behalf, but sometimes you can let the unborn speak for themselves. So if you go to, for instance, my website where we, we purchase the rights to, to photographs and videos of the unborn at varying stages of development, these are very powerful images for people. So when somebody says to you, you know, at 12 weeks, it's, it's just a clump of cells. Well, I have an argument for why it's not a clump of cells, and it's pretty convincing. But sometimes it's better just to say, hey, would you mind letting me show you a picture on my phone of what a 12-week-old baby looks like? And they might grab your phone and be a little irritated at you. And, and But when they see it, you can see their face face change almost always their heart is open there and they're they're softened to this the, to the reality and again that's another reason why we're so excited about being on this side of the argument the truth and the facts and science are very very compelling so sometimes we let we let these uh, babies speak for themselves so I, I'm cautious about polls polls are excellent at telling us what is popular but I can assure you just after the civil uh, just just you know right before just after the Civil War there was a lot of people who thought slavery was okay it never made it just or moral it just made it popular and we have to not confuse popularity with with morality one thing that that of course you and i have talked about before but i find a very interesting point is that um, many people believe that yes abortion destroys the life of of a child of an unborn child but that it saves a woman's future this to me is is such a tremendous lie and it's been swallowed by so many people and I am confronted by this belief that abortion helps women. I'm confronted by it constantly. I, I do a lot of education, of um, I do a lot of talks and uh, with a lot of young people and there's this sort of natural belief that they've just imbibed, they've been you know simmering in it since they were born, that abortion is a liberating procedure for women. I know that that's not true. I know it. I've met too many women who've been terribly hurt by abortion, and and then also for other reasons, for the the deadbeat man <laughs> reason, right? Explain that to us. Why Absolutely. is a, why so, is abortion not liberating? So it, it's clear, and the evidence has shown this that abortion degrades everything and everybody it touches. Certainly, obviously, first and foremost, the children, 62 million children dismembered since Roe v. Wade in 1973. It degrades and harms women. It degrades their humanity. It treats their fertility as a defect. It causes guilt and shame and suffering. Uh, it teaches, again, this this defective human anthropology that life is about pleasure and the self self no matter what the cost it teaches women that, that they can only be free and they can only be equal if they actually kill their children and it allows certainly men to use and abuse and abandon these women and it harms men it teaches men to be irresponsible to be uh, to to abuse women at their most vulnerable it teaches that life is about pleasure and the self uh, and it teaches them to not care for the most vulnerable among us. I mean, our instinct should be to rush to the defense of the most vulnerable in our world, not to exploit them uh, for our own satisfaction. And it certainly harms society for all those values. Uh, it you know, undermines the sound vision of what it means to be human. It teaches our children and society that life is disposable and without value, that, that babies are, as they say now, parasites more than human beings. It leads to uh, thoughts of eugenics. It degrades the institution of marriage, which is obviously 
basically the bedrock of a strong moral society. And instead of fixing society to make sure women are treated well, we teach them they can, they can only be free if they kill their children. And that's that's terrible. And we're not even talking about everybody else. It, it, it degrades and harms the doctor performing the procedure, the nurse that's in the room, the poor janitor who cleans up the blood and body products at the end. It, it, it's, it's a devastating thing on, uh, to everything that it touches. Wow. What a different, uh, what a different worldview from those that see abortion as a as a sacred right, and we're seeing so much of that. I've been I've been really shocked lately at, you know, with the with the leak of the Dobbs um, this decision um, or the, the 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 draft decision by Justice Alito was leaked, as everyone knows, and it's brought out really some violent and and disturbed reactions to the idea that abortion could just go back to something that's decided by the citizens of each state from a moral perspective. Like, how do we feel morally about abortion? You know, how much of it should be allowed under what circumstances, up until what age of the child? Um, where do you think all that deranged passion is coming from? I think it's it's tough for in major movements in this country for one side, whatever. I'm not going to say who's right or wrong, but for, for the quote unquote losing side to deal with change, uh, whether it was the Civil War, whether it was integration. Uh, those are, 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 you know, were huge, gigantic movements in this country. And when decisions were finally made, there was half the population radically objected and marching and burning in the streets and an entire civil war over over those things. I think we have to be courageous in these difficult times and move forward. We do what's right. And sometimes you have to say, well, there, there are going to be difficult consequences. And if it's, it might even be your own safety or the security of your job when you voice your opinions. But doing the moral and just thing is always the right thing to do, irrespective of the consequences. And my, my heart goes out to the, the justices on the Supreme Court and their children who are being threatened right now. But given the chance to do it any other way, they knew what they were getting into. The leaks have happened before, not at this scale before, but these are people who have, on both sides, uh, whether I believe they're right or wrong, both sides who have risen to, to service uh, and living by a moral code that they believe in. And there's consequences to living by your moral code. If you're just joining us, I'm Dr. Gracie Christie, hostess of Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm speaking to my husband, Dr. Stephen Christie, who wrote a book recently called Speaking for the Unborn, 30-second pro-life rebuttals to pro-choice arguments. Now, can I ask you a question? Oh, yes, please. Yeah, I, I didn't get, I didn't think of plan on this, but I have a question. When you married me, I was an atheist, progressive, pro-choice guy. What exactly were you thinking? I could see that, uh, I could see what you were made of. And I, I knew that you were upright and um, noble and you 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 had a connection to you had a connection deep down inside to all that was true and good but your education and your upbringing hadn't hadn't allowed you to understand that about yourself and about god um you were basically tabula rasa <laughs> you were you were a soul that that was very beautiful but but covered up i knew all this but i knew all that's this very very kind of you i i think you were you must have been a little nuts but 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 very nice of you. <laughs> Probably I was a little nuts. But it was it was a very beautiful um, journey to walk with you in in your conversion process. Um, not just in your conversion to to being um, first a believer in God, then then a Christian, then a Catholic, then a daily mass goer um, with a very vibrant faith, a, a daily practiced faith. 
Um, that, that's been very beautiful. It's been really good for our children. But it's also been really wonderful to watch you become passionate about the, the pro-life um, the pro, pro-life ideals and how foundational those are to everything in our lives and our country and the way we treat each other because I think that that's how you see it that it used to be something when when you I think you were always pro-life in a sense that you always respected uh, every human being even those who were unborn um, but but to see it as that um, sort of central issue in, in a in a world gone mad Maybe when maybe the world goes mad when we start treating the most vulnerable and the most uh, delicate and pure amongst us, which who are the unborn, right? The very youngest of us. When we start treating them like trash and they're, and being disposable. Yeah, I, I I think it's it reflects it reflects how you most deeply feel about the most profound issues in life. It's not a decision where I, whether I like red ties or blue ties uh, without much consequence to them, but where one stands on these issues of life really says a lot about how you think about every major issue in your life. Yeah, and and I see I see this um, the idea that children are are dis, are disposable. I see it as something that poisons every relationship that we have with each other, with the government, with with our neighbors, um, with um, it just poisons everything. It, it poisons the family. It poisons relations between men and women. I mean, you just alluded to all of this and, and much more elegant language. Uh, but uh, I, I do find that in, in a world where the youngest and, and most delicate and beautiful of us are the ones that that pay that pay no for for disordered lives and and for undignified treatment of 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 women and when when those babies are the ones that are paying well that that tells you a lot about a society that's that's gone completely dysfunctional yeah, it's interesting that your life perspective at, at our young when we got married and mine was shows how different. I remember when we married, I remember telling you, OK, I'm going to have I'll agree to two kids. I'll agree to two kids that that closed minded view about life. And you I, I obviously I didn't know it at the time, but you smiled and nodded knowingly. that of course, I had no input on how many children we were actually going to have. <laughs> and, and, and we have five now. So so thank thank God I, I had no control over those those issues in our in our marriage. And my favorite thing about the pro-life uh, viewpoint we have and and combined with with our with our faith is our youngest uh, adopted from China, and I usually never talk about adoption, but it's so so uh, related so uh, related to what we're talking about today. So my, I always say my favorite my favorite thing about my faith, and and faith, my faith informs everything that I do. My Catholic faith, but but when. Luli, our littlest one, who's 15 now, and we adopted her when she was only nine months old. She learned about adoption as she, as she got older. You know, and when she was two, she learned I'm adopted. When she's five, that means something else. When she's seven, when she's nine, she's 13. And I remember when she was maybe five or six, and she turned to me and she said, "How come I was adopted? Why was I given up?" And my old secular self wouldn't have had an answer. I could say that's the one-child policy in China, or I, maybe I have some. I couldn't fumble, and I could say to her with 100% confidence, I could look her right in the eye, and I can say, "I don't really know why, but one thing I know for sure: God." made you for us <laughs> and and if i had to think what's been my most wonderful moment in my in my faith journey if that's what we call it it's that that understanding of the the truth that's not just a, a, a pithy statement that is the absolute truth of my life 
she's she is proof of God. Well, I have to say amen to that, Stephen. It's uh, it's been a, a lovely life, <laughs> and um, we're looking forward to grandchildren now. Hopefully, our children will also have imbibed this wonderful pro-life attitude and will give us many grandchildren. We can't think of anything better. Thank you for joining me today, Stephen. It was a distinct pleasure to have you on Conversations with Consequences. Thanks for having me. I'll end it the way I did last time. I hope I'm your only guest that ever said, I'm glad I'm married to you and love you very much. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you. As we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, as we celebrate together the Feast of the Holy Eucharist, His Body and Blood. In the Gospel for this year, the Church has us meditate on the multiplication of the five loaves and two fish to feed the crowd of about 5,000. There are a few reasons why the Church wants us to ponder this miracle on Corpus Christi. First, it happened immediately before Jesus' Bread of Life discourse. Jesus used it to lead us to hunger not for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, the true man of his own flesh and blood that he would give us. Second, because of the verbs we encounter, when St. Luke tells us that Jesus took the bread and fish into his hand, looked up to heaven, blessed and broke them, and gave them to his disciples, these were all gestures and words that are identical to what happened in the upper room when he transformed bread and wine into himself. Third, many great saints have looked at the miracle of the multiplications of loaves and fish as foreshadowings, respectively, of the multiplication of the Eucharist, represented by the bread, and of believers, represented by the fish caught by fishes of men. What I'd like to ponder, however, is the great contrast between the miracle of the loaves and fish and the miracle of the Eucharist. In this Sunday's Gospel, after the Twelve approached Jesus to encourage him to dismiss the crowd so that they could go to the surrounding villages and farms to get provisions, Jesus told them, Give them some food yourselves. Even though they could only scrounge up five small buns and two fish, which would have been inadequate to feed even the apostles, not to mention several thousand, Jesus wanted to incorporate their meager offerings, much like in the Eucharist. He seeks to incorporate our efforts, starting not with grains and grapes, but with bread and wine, not only the fruit of the earth and vine, but the work of human hands. But whereas the apostles could actually give the crowd something themselves, however meager, in the Eucharist, there was no way the apostles directly could give the crowds the spiritual nourishment they needed even more. Jesus alone could do that. And one year after the multiplication of the loaves and fish, during the next Passover, Jesus took bread and wine into his hands in the upper room, totally changed them into his body and blood, and said not just Take and eat this my body, and take and drink this is the chalice my blood, but also do this in memory of me. Rather than starting with the raw materials of fish and bread, the apostles brought him to multiply. Jesus began the miracle himself, and then gave the apostles the command through the sacrament of holy orders to multiply his body and blood, bringing it to feed the crowds throughout time until the ends of the earth. With regard to the spiritual nourishment we need, Jesus doesn't say, give them some food yourselves, but rather, this is my body, this is my blood, and give them this food. On Corpus Christi, we focus on this tremendous, loving self-gift of Jesus and what a response should be. 
St. Thomas Aquinas' famous Lauda Zion Salvatorum that the Church proclaims as a sequence before the Gospel this Sunday, St. Thomas tells us what the only fitting response should be. Quantum potes tantum aude, he writes, literally, whatever you can do so much dare, before noting the reality of the gift of the Eucharistic Jesus far exceeds the capacity of all human praise and action. The spirit of daring to do all we can. Well, it's meant to characterize our approach to the Eucharistic Jesus in general, to the celebration of Corpus Christi in particular, with beautiful masses, periods of adoration, Eucharistic processions, and more, should mark in a special way the attitude of Catholics toward the U.S. Bishop's three-year Eucharistic revival, which starts this Sunday and will, will last through 2025. This is the biggest Eucharistic initiative in the history of the Church in the United States. In this first year, there will be diocesan events for clergy, faithful, students, and more. The second year will focus on helping every parish to become truly Eucharistic and boldly to do all it can. The third will be a national year, beginning with the first National Eucharistic Congress in almost 50 years in the U.S., where the bishops hope 100,000 or more will come to Indianapolis, on July 17th to the 21st, 2024, to celebrate this gift and commit themselves to being Eucharistic missionaries, taking their knowledge and love of the Eucharistic Lord out to fallen away Catholics in their parishes and families, to our Protestant brothers and sisters, and to others. But the most important dimension is not diocesan, parochial, or national. It's personal. The bishops hope that each of us will commit to grow our Eucharistic faith, amazement, life, and love. The reason why the U.S. bishops have established this initiative is a response to a crisis in Eucharistic faith and life. Only one out of five Catholics in the U.S. comes to Mass each Sunday, and far fewer attend Holy Days of Obligation. Several recent surveys have shown that only three out of ten Catholics, and only half of those who attend Mass each Sunday, believe what the Church boldly professes about the Eucharist, that the Eucharist actually and astonishingly is Jesus, his body, blood, soul, and divinity under the appearances of bread and wine, that after the words of consecration, God himself is really, truly, and substantially present on our altar, in our tabernacles, and within us who receive him. And since, as the Second Vatican Council famously described, the celebration of the Eucharist is the source, summit, root, and center of Catholic faith and life, if Catholics' Eucharistic faith and present practice are weak, then all of Catholic life is enfeebled. Hence the urgency and importance of the Eucharistic revival. So I'd like to get practical about two ways we're called to live this Eucharistic revival. The first is with regard to the Mass, so that we may get more out of it by putting more love into it. The revival is a chance for us better to prepare for Mass and stoke our desire, knowing that in Mass we enter into, in time into the eternal actions of Jesus in the upper room on Calvary and from the empty tomb. The more we yearn for Jesus, the more we hunger for the food that endures to eternal life that he gives us through his priests, the more we will make our whole life Eucharistic, not just coming to Mass on Sunday and Holy Days when we have to, but during the week when we can, simply out of love. We can likewise focus during this revival on whether we truly pray the Mass or simply attend it, whether we mean the words we say, whether we hang on Jesus' words as words to be done. We can focus on lovingly adoring Jesus before we receive him, the thanksgiving we give for the unbelievable gift, and whether we leave transformed so as to transform the world in the Eucharistic key by giving our own body, blood, sweat, tears, everything we are and have out of love for God and others. The second practical way to live this Eucharistic revival is through Eucharistic adoration, spending time before the Eucharistic Jesus in personal prayer and worship. 
Pope Francis likes to say that Eucharistic adoration, his favorite form of prayer, crushes our idols and helps us to grow stronger in our faith in Christ Jesus, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, with us in the Holy Eucharist. To those who don't believe in Jesus' real presence in the Eucharist, Eucharistic adoration is foolish, almost, as some heretics blasphemously call it, cookie worship. But if we take Jesus' word seriously when he says, this is my body, this is the chalice of my blood, my body is true food, my blood true drink, and unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Then we come before Jesus in worship and grow in Eucharistic faith as well as become more like him whom we adore. If we really believe that the Eucharist is Jesus and we love him, then we want to spend more time with him. Jesus said to Margaret Mary that he had so loved the world that he exhausted himself in testimony of his love. But for most, he received only indifference, irreverence, coldness, sacrilege, and scorn toward him in the Eucharist. What we ought to give Jesus is exactly the opposite. Instead of indifference, we should make him in the Eucharist the biggest difference in our life. Instead of irreverence, we should bathe him with reverence and piety. Instead of coldness, passion. Instead of sacrilege, holy souls purified in confession, instead of scorn, the greatest praise and thanks we can muster. Eucharistic adoration helps us to do just that. A third way I'll mention briefly is by taking Jesus in the Eucharist out to the world. In Corpus Christi, many of us will participate in processions, in which the priest will place the Eucharistic Jesus in a monstrance, carry him around our parish or into our local neighborhood. That's beautiful and a real testimony to our Eucharistic faith and love. While Eucharistic adoration helps to grow in Eucharistic discipleship, Eucharistic processions help us to grow in Eucharistic apostolate, trying to share our faith in the Eucharist with others. The awesome reality is that when we receive Jesus within in Holy Communion, we in fact become monstrances, sent out to the world to bring Jesus to others, much like the Blessed Mother after she conceived Jesus within her by the power of the Holy Spirit of the Annunciation, went with haste to bring Jesus growing inside of her to St. Elizabeth and St. John the Baptist. What a privilege it is to take Jesus inside of us to others. What an opportunity to show others the difference Jesus in the Eucharist makes in our life. The way we respond to Jesus in the Eucharist should be greater than the way any of us respond to the most effective medicines. We take two Advil and know it will alleviate our headache, or two Tums and take away our heartburn. How much more should the Eucharist change our life? As we prepare to celebrate Corpus Christi and begin the Eucharistic revival, we thank the Lord Jesus for the incredible love he has shown us in humbly giving himself as our spiritual nourishment. He accounted nothing else worthy of our souls. We ask him for the grace to dare to do all we can in response to his self-gift. By the way we prioritize him in the Eucharist, spend time with him in adoration, and seek to bring him to others and others to him. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 